You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. If you are a visitor here, if you're new here, my name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my honor to typically bring God's Word when we gather together, and so we are going to do just that. We have been in a study in the book of Daniel for a while now, and we have titled it Living as Exiles. And that is because Daniel and his friends are exactly that. They are exiles. They are strangers in this empire called formerly Babylon, now the Persian Empire as where we're at in this story. They have been deported from their homeland, Judah, where the temple is, where their families are, where their community is, and they have been made exiles in this beastly empire. In Daniel's life, what happens to him, his uh, testing, his triumphs, and his victory is going to be what is typical of us as Christians. In this age and in our time, we, just like Daniel, are exiles. We are living as exiles until our exile comes to an end, and it will. And so what we've seen the last several sermons is, is this model of an exile, what an exile looks like, what it takes to be an exile. And if you were paying attention or what you'll notice is that every single story, every single chapter we've gone through thus far has taken place in the king's court. Uh, commentators call this the, the king's court narratives. They're all about the interactions that Daniel or his friends are having with the kings. And that's where we see the distinguishing characteristics of what makes an exile. From here on out, starting in chapter 7 to the end of the book, we're going to get into the prophetic portions of the book of Daniel. We're no longer looking necessarily at the profile of an exile, but we're going to see how and when our exile comes to an end. That's what's ahead of us. But today is our last sermon about what it looks like to be an exile. And so verse 3, uh, if, you're, if you have your Bibles before you, it says that Daniel... It says he was distinguished among all the counselors and advisors. It says that he had an excellent spirit in him. In other words, what the Persians think about Daniel, how they classify Daniel, is that he is remarkable. He's a remarkable kind of person. There's something very special about Daniel. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to see through this story what's so remarkable about him. What does it take to be that kind of remarkable exile? That's what you are. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is not your home. And this world and this age is not where your hope lies. You've not deposited it here. It's in the age to come, and it's in the world to come. We are citizens of the future kingdom, not citizens of this time. And so we want to know from Daniel's life, what does it take to be a remarkable exile? What does it look like to be a remarkable exile? And he's not only going to show us what it looks like, but he's also going to show us why. You know, what do we need to empower us to be that kind of exile, okay? So that's what's ahead of us today. Our last week looking at what it looks like to be an exile. So before we go ahead and dig in and study, let's together bow our heads and ask God to be with us. Father, we come before you and we ask that you, that you capture our hearts now. That you would fill us with a desire to be faithful unto you. That you would fill us with a desire to live on mission. That you'd fill us with a desire to make our life 
count for something, that we would not be deceived and settle for uh, counterfeit sources of hope, counterfeit ambitions that are never going to really fulfill and never really going to make a dent in the kingdom and matter for eternity. God, we want our lives to mean something. We want to live as long as you allow, Lord, with no regret. We want to come to the end of our time with no regrets about how we've lived because we have been found faithful. Please, Lord, teach us what that looks like. Teach us how to do that today. We pray and ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. What does it look like to be remarkable? That's God's will. God wants you to live in a certain way, uh, uh, be in a state of being at all times in such a way that is wildly attractive to the watching world. He wants your life to incite curiosity in the watching world. And so what does that look like? First, what we're going to see in Daniel is that it takes integrity. It takes integrity. Look at verse 4. It says this about Daniel, uh, the story here. Then the high officials, the satraps, they sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel. They were jealous. They, he was com- competition, but he was beating them. They wanted his position. They wanted his influence. But look, it says they could find no ground for complaint or any fault against Daniel because he was faithful. He was consistent. He was true and true. There was no incoherence. There was no uh, duplicity. There was no fakeness about Daniel at all. No error was found in him. What an amazing thing for these opponents, right? These people are not on Daniel's team. They're not in his favor, yet they profess and realize with their own mouths and minds that Daniel is flawless. He's clean. They got nothing on him. They got nothing on him because his life is ordered, because he is consistent in character, because his life is coherent, no lapses, right? No hypocrisy. He has integrity. Integrity means this, that you are the same person regardless of situation, environment, or circumstance. Think about that and think about how challenging that is to you and to me. Are you that? Are you the same person here at church as you are at work? Are you the same person here at church as you are at home and private with your family, where you're comfortable, where where the guard is down? Are you the same person on every front of life? Because that is a person with integrity and that kind of person is remarkable. They're just consistent on all fronts of life. They're blameless. They got nothing on them. And that's a remarkable person. It's this personal quality of consistency. But here's what is also very astounding about a person with integrity. And here's, I think, what Daniel wants us to see. It's, it, integrity isn't just this personal virtue, this personal power. A person of integrity also creates change around them. It's like that personal integrity overflows out of them and creates an environment of consistency, an environment of order, and an environment of coherency. Integrity is not just a personal thing. It's a public thing, okay? It's not just a personal power. It's a environmental power. And I think Daniel wants us to see this with the contrast between him and these guys who are trying to 
cause him to, to have a downfall. Look at verses uh, 5 through 7. These men, they can't dig up any dirt on Daniel, so what do then they attack? What do they go after? They go after the fact that he is blameless. They go after his integrity. That's what they're going to go ahead and take issue with. Look at verses 5 through 7. These men said, we shall not find any ground for complaining against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. We're not going to find any problem with Daniel except in his truth, except in his actual integrity, except in his actual blamelessness and character. We have to peg him for that. So these men and these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All, uh, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. So these men make a, a restriction on worship, a restriction on religious freedom. These men make a limitation on what people can do in their freedom of conscience. So here's what these men have done. They have, they're trying to successfully make Daniel's belief system, his truth, his character, his worldview, however you want to say it, his faith system, they're trying to make his faith system seem intolerant. They're trying to make his faith system, his truth, seem exclusive. And so what they do is they take advantage of this moment where Darius, he's this new king over this new empire. He has to build allegiance somehow with these new people who are underneath his reign and underneath his authority. And so they say, hey, make a decree where everybody for 30 days has to shift their allegiance to you. That would be obviously very appealing for a king who's coming to a new territory, who wants to somehow cause greater allegiance amongst his people. And so they make everyone pay homage, homage only to the king. But here's what's interesting. Here's what, I want, here's what I think we should notice here. By making Daniel seem intolerant, by making Daniel seem exclusive, they, ironically, have legislated intolerance. They, ironically, have legislated exclusion. By making him look intolerant, they are all the more intolerant. This is what will always happen when we make our own rules on our own agenda according to our own wisdom, for our own sake. Inevitably, when we create law, when we manufacture morality, when we create morality, there will always be a lack of integrity. There always will be inconsistency, meaning there will always be injustice. People will fall through the cracks. Someone will get the short end of the deal. Someone will get preferential treatment. There will be incoherence, inconsistency, a lack of fairness, a lack of justice and equity at a societal level when we manufacture our own morality. That's what these men are doing in response to Daniel's faith system. Look, here's the truth. Every worldview Every system of belief, no matter how religious or, or irreligious a person is, every single outlook on life is filled with exclusive claims, is to a degree intolerant, is to a degree filled with absolutes. Every single one of us, no matter who you are, is going to have those things. The question is not whether or not your worldview or your truth system is exclusive or intolerant or has absolutes. Everyone has that. The question rather is, which worldview or truth system has the greatest degree of inclusivism, the greatest degree of good for most people, the greatest potential for flourishing of all people? 
That's the, really the right question to ask. So I want you to notice that these men, they say they must find their complaint in connection with what? It says the law of God. The only way, then, here's what this means, the only way we maintain consistency, consistency on a societal level so that justice is produced and equity is maintained is if we follow God's law. And here's why. Because this is his world. And he created this world. And he has this embedded order, this embedded intelligence in it. And when we abide by his law, we are honoring the true nature of things. And we will integrate into this order of God's good creation and we and others will flourish. See, when we broaden integrity beyond just my life and how I operate to society as a whole, then cities and nations and societies will function with coherence. No more cracks, no more preferential treatment, no more slipping through the cracks. A person's personal integrity will always create societal, public, greater integrity. But a person's lack of integrity Their duplicitousness or their intolerance will always create greater intolerance, greater cracks, greater inconsistencies. The only way that we create integrity and coherence at a greater level is if we abide by the law of God because this is his world and he has made it. And only if we integrate with his way of things will we flourish. See, William Wilberforce, he was an abolitionist in the late 1700s, early 1800s, three days before he died. Get this, three days before he died, he worked his whole entire life to see the abolition of the African slave trade. Three days before he died, he witnessed to see its, its abolition in England. Amazing. But what propelled him? What motivated him to spend his life arguing for this, legislating for it, pushing for this? It was his Christian faith. See, belief in the law of God, that kind of integrity directly results in societal good. A person's integrity will work outward and create a system of integrity. You know, as we've read the book of Daniel, he keeps rising through the ranks, doesn't he? And he keeps being extremely impressive. And as he rises through the ranks and as he is found to be impressive, do you know what's been happening to these kingdoms all along? These kingdoms, Babylon and Persia, they have flourished It says at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, at the end of his life, his kingdom prospered like never before. In this kingdom, we know Persia prospers like never before in this time. You have to ask yourself, why is that? Well, here's this man, Daniel, who it says was going to be made ruler of the entire territory by Darius. Why Why do you think these nations are succeeding and flourishing? Perhaps, this is a hypothetical, but I think it's an educated guess. Perhaps it's because there's a man who has influence and a man who has position and platform, who has such great personal integrity that's working outward for societal good and for greater good that this kingdom is flourishing. Even this dark and godless empire is flourishing because this man with personal integrity has influence within it. Like I'm telling you guys, this is God's will. And I know that might sound weird or scandalous, but if your hope is in him, if you don't get your identity from your work, if you don't get your sense of self-worth from your performance, if you get your everything from Jesus, if you're deeply rooted in him, you as an exile, you as a Christian should seek influence, (laughs) should seek position, should seek platform because 
God wants to use you to work for the greater good. God wants to use you to bless other people. God wants to use you to advance his kingdom even in this age. That is what exile does. But you have to have integrity or it's never going to work because you're never going to be remarkable then. And you're never going to create remarkable things outside of you. So that's what Daniel shows us. One, you have to have integrity personally that works its way outward because you abide by the law of God. Here's what else we know. If you want to be a remarkable person, you have to have courage. That's what Daniel does. He, he knows the decree. The decree has been signed, sealed, delivered. Everybody knows this edict has been made. And then what does Daniel do? What's his response? Does he hide? Is he embarrassed? Does he shrink back? Let's, let's read and see what he does. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, if you're paying attention to the details here, his window's open, wide open. It's on the second floor within view of everybody. It's public view. And it says, as he has done previously, meaning this is his custom. He's always done this, prayed publicly. Now that the decree went out, he doesn't hide. He doesn't shrink back. He's not embarrassed. He's not ashamed. He literally keeps doing what he's always been doing, regardless of the consequence, regardless of what's going to happen. Daniel has courage. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't retreat. Now, in small group this week, you can talk about this. This is a good thing to talk about. I'm thinking this week as I'm preparing, how am I going to apply this? Like what, how does this really meet us where we're at, Citizens Church at, in our daily lives? How does this kind of courage show up for us? Okay, you can, again, there's a lot of answers for that. Talk about it in small group this week. Go to small group, don't miss it. But here's what I think. I, I, thought, of, I thought of our missionary in Sweden, BJ. We have a missionary in Sweden. He's there with the team, reaching the lost. And Sweden, you know, is, is pervasively lost, uh, uh, unreached. The majority of people there have zero clue what the Bible teaches, have zero clue about anything Christian. Anything we're familiar with culturally about Christianity, for them it's a different language. For them it's a different world. It's like archaic. It's like, it's like lost in the past. And yet here's, here's BJ and his team, and they're having these conversations with these uh, you know, unchurched, uh, irreligious people, these postmodern people, and they're shocked to find out not just that they're Christians— but that they're Christians who believe in a real resurrection of Jesus. They're Christians who believe in a real virgin birth. They're Christians who believe in the actual historicity and reliability of the Bible. They're Christians who believe in actual destiny, heaven and hell. They're Christians who believe in uh, sex is in marriage and best in marriage. Like these crazy things that Christians believe, these Swedish people are finding out these folks actually alive today, breathing and living, believe these things. And BJ said, it's not polarizing. In fact, what we have seen consistently is people are intrigued. It's almost like we're a museum and they're like, whoa, I didn't know this still existed. I didn't know this was still here. And BJ said, look, don't, don't try to hide how weird Christianity is. Keep Christianity weird. Keep Christianity weird. Because it's actually the weird stuff that catches people's attention. It's actually the weird stuff that works. It's actually the weird stuff that creates conversations that are meaningful. And I think sometimes, okay, when we're 
you know, we're, we're having these conversations or we, we know that conversation's coming, that that person's going to ask us or at some point down the line in this conversation, we're going to have to bring up the fact that I'm a Christian and I go to church. We get embarrassed. We tend to overthink and over-rationalize and over-explain. We get stressed out and anxious about how am I going to, you know, make this receptive? How am I going to make this attractive? And I'm not saying do a bad job, but I am saying this. Don't, don't worry about it. Keep Christianity weird. You don't need to hide it. You don't need to be ashamed about it. You don't need to be embarrassed about the fact that we believe in a real resurrection. We believe in heaven and hell. We believe that God's design for us is for our best. Don't, don't be weird. It's, it's okay. And the thing is, the more you hide it and try to like shrink it down into a swallowable size, something in the package that's going to be received really well, it's actually counterproductive. It actually does the very opposite of the thing that you think you're going to do. But when you keep it weird, when you keep it just real and authentic and raw, it actually works. It actually creates meaningful conversation. It actually moves people one step closer to Jesus. Have the courage to keep it weird. Have the courage to not hide and be ashamed and embarrassed. Just be honest. Be honest about who you are and what you believe. Don't hide. Don't be ashamed. And you know what? When it seems consequential, like for Daniel, obviously consequential, being, being, being authentic, having that courage, obviously consequential. This is when it matters most. Do you want to have a remarkable witness and affect people and move them one, cl- one step closer to Jesus? Do you want uh, 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 your life to cash in for the kingdom and matter? When the pressure's on, when it's actually risk, actually consequential to profess the name of Jesus and state what you believe and put your hope in, that's when it's most attractive. That's when it's most powerful to your hearers. So don't hide and don't shrink back and don't be embarrassed. God has put you there and God has intensified the risk and the consequence so that he might look great through you, through your courage. So have integrity and be courageous. And lastly, okay, this is, I think this is really cool. What it looks like to be remarkable is to be loved by the lost. And I just mentioned that we're supposed to be courageous. And I think we make the mistake, listen here, I think we make the mistake in thinking that for me to be courageous and upfront with my faith means I need to be controversial or it means I need to be callous. No, (laughs) because that's not at all how Daniel carries himself. And that's not at all the effect that Daniel's courage has, that Daniel's uh, remarkable witness has, that his lack of compromise has. He is loved. He is loved by the lost. Let's go ahead and see that. Look at verse 13. Uh, These guys, they answer, they report Daniel and they say, Daniel, who is one of your exiles from Judah, he pay, look at this, he pays no attention to you, O king. See see what they're trying to do there? They're trying to make it seem like Daniel's refusal to, um, to, to compromise is a personal slant against Darius, is a personal, uh, a personal issue with the king. They make it personal. He pays no attention to you, O king, so we have to throw him in the lion's den. Now, the question is, will Darius bite? Will Darius be offended? Will this personal slight amount to such a a, a degree that's like, oh yeah, down with Daniel. Let's get rid of Daniel. What what happens? 14 to 20. I want you to notice what words and phrases are, are used to describe Darius. This pagan, cruel, beastly king. Okay, how is he described then the king, 
when he heard these words, was much distressed. And literally that means like sick to his stomach. He set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by, agreement to the king, and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel's brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone is brought and laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's. Uh, nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Listen to this. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, meaning no women. No women were brought into his chamber that night. Sleep fled from him. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. He came near the den, of, the den where Daniel was. And he cried out in a tone of anguish, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then when Daniel's found alive, it says this in 23, the king was exceedingly glad, which is literally in Hebrew or in Aramaic, the original language, the exact opposite of what we saw before. He was sick to his stomach. Now he's exceedingly glad. One extreme to the other. He commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel's taken up because he trusted in his God. So literally, what do we see with Darius here? This king who's been personally slighted, who, whose prestige and kingdom and honor has been snubbed by Daniel. How does he respond? He is sick to his stomach with anxiety and worry. He is up all night and loses sleep. He is thrilled when he finds out that Daniel is still alive. He wishes him well. Is, does this sound like a man who's indifferent to Daniel? <laughs> does this sound like a man who's just blasé about this man in his life? And Daniel, you know, he's this 83 probably, 83 years old at this point in his life. You know, is he just, just going to go ahead and, and, and wipe himself clean of Daniel? Uh, whatever, it's time. We can move on. Is that how he is? Is he indifferent to Daniel? No, this man is heartbroken over the potential harm to come to Daniel, the potential loss of Daniel in the kingdom and in his life. Now, we don't know why. Maybe because Daniel is extremely valuable to the kingdom as a consult. Certainly that's true. Certainly Daniel's wisdom and, and demeanor and everything about Daniel has been only good for everybody. But I have to think that there's a relationship here that Darius does not want to lose this man who is remarkable. This man who's been blameless and has done nothing wrong. This man who he knows does not deserve this. <sighs> maintain your integrity and maintain your courage. And in time, you will woo people. In time, you will win people. And he, I'm not saying that you're going to win them to Jesus in a snap of a finger. I'm not saying that's all going to go okay and it's all going to be just peaceable. But here's what I am saying. People who are close to you, who you spend enough time with and who your life is enmeshed with and you bless over time, they're going to think to themselves, <laughs> I've said this before, I'll say it again. They're going to think to themselves, I don't agree with them. I actually find a few points of what they think absolutely just disagreeable. But I cannot imagine my life without them. I, I am afraid and terrified to think about what my life would be like if they were absent. That should be your goal. 
to make yourself indispensable to people in your life, to become so essential, valuable, so, uh, so, such a blessing to other people in your life that you are indispensable. That is God's will for his exiles. That is how we live attractively in this age, with courage, with integrity, and as a blessing, so much so that we are loved even by the lost, even with those who disagree with us. This is what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth. Salt makes meat taste great, okay? You are meant to make people's lives rich. You are meant to make Jesus look amazing. He says a city on a hill, it can't be hidden. You can't hide a light. You are that city. You are that light. You are to be salty. This is God's will for you. But it's only going to happen. Only, only, only going to happen if you maintain your integrity and your courage and you are blessing to other people. That's the only way it's going to happen. But it doesn't happen all of a sudden. You know, this kind of, this kind of person... You don't, you don't become this person overnight. I hope when you leave here, you take a huge giant leap to be in this person, but this does not happen overnight. So we have to now ask ourselves, how do we become this kind of person? That's remarkable. What's the secret to becoming this person? First way you become this person is through prayer. Through a deep, rich, meaningful prayer life. And we get prayer wrong. We're so quick with prayer. We, we just check the box with prayer. We think prayer doesn't matter. We think prayer, I don't know, we, think, we, we do not give prayer the place it should in our life. Prayer is like the intersection of where all things about following Jesus collide and actually take effect on us and have an effect upon us, okay? I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting excited, okay? Let's go back to verse 10 and look at Daniel's prayer life. This is how Daniel has become this kind of person. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem. That's one detail you should underline. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. You should underline all that. As he had done previously, you should underline that as well. Okay, the first de- detail to notice is that he prayed open toward, with an open window towards Jerusalem. He was facing Jerusalem, his homeland, where the temple was when he prayed. Why, though? Why would Daniel include that detail? Why is that even important at all? Let me go ahead and read something to you. Uh, centuries before, when Solomon builds the temple and inaugurates the temple and opens it up, he makes this you know, corporate prayer to all of Israel. Here's what Solomon says in his prayer when he dedicates the temple. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8. It'll be behind me. It says, Solomon prays to God, if they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, which, hey, that's where Daniel's at. That's what's happened. The reason why Judah is in exile is because they have sinned repeatedly and not kept covenant. So, when you're angry with them and give them to the enemy, so they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, Yet, if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted pervasively and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, toward their land, which you gave to the fathers, the city, Jerusalem, that you have chosen, and the house that I built for your name, the temple, 
Then here in heaven and make your dwelling place there. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people. So Daniel is doing exactly this. He's read 1 Kings 8, and, and think about this. He has allowed his reading of the Bible to instruct the way he prays. He's praying with a window open towards Jerusalem because that's what the Bible tells him to do. This is what makes a deeply meaningful and rich prayer life when we're praying God's word, when we allow God's word to shape our conversations with him. And you know what that's going to do? That's going to uh, 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 eliminate all superficiality in your prayer. That's going to eliminate all just doing it customarily. Like this is just what we do. We check the box, we pray, just making it sort of a task. It's going to eliminate task-oriented prayer. It's going to eliminate superficial prayer. This makes prayer rich. When you let your reading of the scriptures determine how you have this conversation with God. This is what Daniel's prayer life teaches us. The Bible shapes his prayer. But not only that, we keep going. Notice that it says he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. He's humble. He gets down on his knees. There's a submission and he prays, meaning he makes requests of God. And then it says he gives thanks to God. He celebrates what God has done. This is, look at this, this dynamic of submission and humility with boldness and confidence, asking God for help and asking God to show up and intervene. And at the same time, giving thanks for what God has already done. All the bases are covered. So not only is Daniel's prayer life meaningful and rich, but it's dynamic, okay? It's not one dimensional. It's filled with celebration, filled with clinging to God and asking for help with a submissive, contrite, heart. And then lastly, it says, as he has done previously, which means this deep, rich, dynamic prayer life does not last one day. This is his habit. This is his lifestyle. This is just what he does day in, day out. Friends, (laughs) becoming a remarkable person, this is what it takes, a commitment to this kind of prayer life. So here's my encouragement to you then. You have to put your life on pause. And you have to be okay with that. You have to, this is so hard for me to say because this is my idol. You have to let go of productivity. (laughs) Prayer is so counterintuitive. And it seems so counterproductive. Like we're not getting anything done. We're just practicing stillness and having a conversation. It seems like nothing's happening you know what's happening? You're, you are changing. That is the real work of prayer. That's what really matters at the end of the day in prayer. You're not changing. I wrestle with the question sometimes, like, if God is sovereign and he's laid out human history, I believe that he's done that. What's the purpose of prayer? Why would I pray? I don't think God's going to change his will that he's, that he's predetermined according to my prayers. You know, we could spend a whole series on that. Here's what I'll say, okay? Prayer is not purpose to change God's will. It's purpose to change our will. It's purpose to change us, recalibrate our hearts and make us aligned with him and content in him and follow him with a pure heart. This makes sense, doesn't it? Do you, to be a remarkable person, this is, what, this is what's necessary. And you know what? It'll do it. You have to commit to it though. 
And you have to be okay letting go of productivity. We are so obsessed and addicted in our Western culture to getting things done. We're not good with stillness. In fact, we practice stillness and then we just want to start chronically scrolling five seconds later. Put the phone away. Put it away. Get away with coffee. Stay awake and practice stillness. And let God change your will. Let God change your heart. And in time, in time, this will become you. And this will become me. And we'll move people one step closer to Jesus by our life. Okay? So we need prayer. Lastly, though, what else do we need? We need to be verified as exiles. We need, be, we need our, this remarkable quality about us to be verified. What I mean is we need to be tested and approved and stamped with God's approval and by the watching world's recognition that we are actually, in fact, remarkable because we've gone through the gauntlet of suffering and of trial and of testing. Uh, it wouldn't matter if Daniel had integrity and courage if he just dies and is forgotten. If it just seems like this great life that he lived didn't amount to anything because he just died like any other person. And so what happens when he's thrown into the den of lions? This, this certain death he's cast into. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, Daniel said to the king, when, when the king arrives the next morning, Daniel responds and says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Daniel gives the reason why he makes it through. It's because he was blameless before God and before the king. He survived the night with the lions because God wanted to verify that Daniel was in fact remarkable. That this integrity and courage and being a blessing to other people, it's not a fraud. It's not just this happy-go-lucky attitude. It's not just this, you know, self-help stuff that works and makes him a happy person. God wanted to prove to everybody (laughs) that this is supernatural, that this kind of person is otherworldly. They're not just a good attitude, happy-go-lucky person. There's something much more mysterious than that. And so God verified. God verified now let me ask this question. Why does Daniel write this story? Daniel chapter 6. This story of the Den of Lions. We, know, we all know the story if you grew up in church. It's a great story, but why would he even pen this? It's not, out, it's not to boast. He's not trying to, uh, you know, be impressive himself. Why would he pen this then? And here's why. It was to encourage his readers that what is typical of his life is going to be typical of theirs. He wants to encourage all exiles that the pattern of his life is the pattern of our life. We are called to be remarkable. It will be tested, but if you trust God, you will be verified and proven that you are in fact remarkable, that you are in fact an exile loved and chosen by God. So what Daniel teaches us is that we need this remarkable quality about our life to not just exist, but more than that, to be proven, to be verified, to be validated. Now you might think, <clears throat> I don't, I'm not facing a den of lions. You know, I'm not being cast to a certain death here. So how am I supposed to be proven before the watching world that I actually am legitimately an exile who is preserved by God? How is that going to happen? It's going to happen through te- your testing. <laughs> there you go. Every one of us here have been, 
are or will be very soon tested. God appoints for each and every one of us difficulty and trials and suffering. And what the purpose of those things are is to prove to you, confirm to you, and confirm to others that God is with you, and that He is doing something in you, and that He is calling you to be remarkable and making you this remarkable exile. So you will be tested, and you will, if you make it through the gauntlet faithfully, you will move people one step closer to Jesus. How does the story end with Darius? What does he do? I don't think he's converted, but he makes this declaration that this God is different, that Daniel's God is different, that this God is one of a kind. Possibly not converted, probably not converted, but certainly one step closer to Jesus. And so we must be verified through testing, through trial, coming out on the other side with God's help as proven to be remarkable. But here's the reality, is that we, always don't, we don't always make it through very well. <laughs> that sometimes that gauntlet and that testing, <laughs> what it reveals is that I'm not remarkable. <laughs> that we're not actually this. And I, Daniel's not, I mean, Daniel's not perfect either. It says everybody sins in 1 Kings 8, the very thing he's praying and believing. <laughs> and so, we won't always be ver- verified as remarkable. But here's the good news. If you're united to Jesus, if you are united to Jesus and trusting in him, you have this assurance and you have this power that you are being made into somebody remarkable and that one day you will be proven with finality to be a remarkable exile. And here's what I want to show us. Daniel and this lion's den experience, he points to somebody and something, an event even beyond himself for us to put our faith in, for us to put our trust in. Think about this with me. Think, think about this with me. This is the climax of the sermon, okay? Here we go. Daniel goes through this type of death and resurrection, doesn't he? He's cast into certain death. The entrance to the den is sealed An angel is in the den with him until he emerges from it alive while his enemies are judged in death. This verification, it points to a future verification, an ultimate verification of Jesus where he literally dies and resurrects. He is not cast into a den of lions, but he's cast into the tomb and into hell. The entrance of Jesus' tomb is sealed Yet he emerges the morning of the third day with angels remaining in the tomb and all who oppose him will undergo the death he did but without the life after. All to show that Jesus is the true and better Daniel. He is the promise. He is the certainty that God exalts the humble and opposes the proud and will release his people from their exile. But until he does, he will make us into faithful exiles. And look, I'm not making this up. I think it's a nice one for one, but literally in Matthew's gospel, he uses the same word for seal and stone that the Greek Old Testament uses for seal and stone in this account with Daniel. The biblical authors know that Jesus is the true and better Daniel. So here's the good news. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, that verification, it's been applied to you. The same 
power that raised Jesus from physical death into physical immortality is already, if you're in him, being applied to you spiritually. He's already, by the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrecting you daily as you die to yourself and maintain your integrity and courage and live as a blessing to other people and die to yourself, he's resurrecting somebody else in you. Somebody else remarkable. Somebody else wildly attractive to the watching world. He's releasing you from your idols and the power of sin by the power of his resurrection already. He's making you into somebody remarkable. And look, there will be a day We no longer need integrity because our world will be full of integrity. We will no longer need courage because there will be no more opposition. We will be in eternity with the people that we've been living as a blessing to and have loved us in return. We will one day ultimately be verified the same way Jesus was through physical, bodily, resurrected. Our destiny to live with him and one another forever and ever and ever, triumphant and victorious. The power of sin, the presence of sin, completely destroyed. And all that's left for us is life with him. Life with one another, released from exile, home with him. So, What kind of life do you want to lead? You hear plebes, like everyone here, listen. You have a decision to make today. What do you want to commit to? And what kind of life do you want? Do you want your life to matter? Do you want your life to be spent for the kingdom? Paul says in Philippians 3, I want my life to be poured out like a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith. Do you want to live like that? Not for yourself, not keeping yourself to yourself, but living for others. It takes integrity, a personal and then an outworking of integrity. It takes courage, it takes being a blessing, and it takes the courage to pause and pray. And it takes trust in Jesus to resurrect you daily until he resurrects you finally one day. Let's pray. Father, We celebrate you and we are thankful that we can trust you. You have put us, Lord, here in this time, at this moment, as exiles, as ambassadors of Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would make us faithful like Daniel, that you'd make us blameless, that you'd make us courageous, that you'd make us live as a blessing to other people. God, I pray that you would do this work in us until you return. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.